Welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 478. My name is Minter Dial, and I'm your host for this podcast, a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. For more information or to check out other shows on the network, please go and visit evergreenpodcasts.com. This week's interview is with Tara Tabman Basirian. Tara, lawyer by training, is a renowned expert in privacy data protection, intellectual property, e-commerce, and e-reputation. Voted Privacy Hero of the Year in 2018, Tara is passionate about eradicating cyberbullying and improving online security. In this conversation with Tara, we discuss the biggest issues facing corporations and executives in terms of data privacy and cybersecurity. We explore some of the challenges around online regulation, especially the EU's General Data Protection Regulation, GDPR, protection versus prohibition, risk management, managing one's presence online as an executive, and much more. You'll find all the show notes on mintodial.com. Please consider the drop in your rating and review, and don't forget to subscribe to catch all the future episodes. Now for the show. Tara Tobman Basirian, a lawyer a privacy advocate, voted Privacy Hero of the Year, and you're French, based in London, sounds similar to me. Uh, I'd love for you to describe yourself in your own words. Um, well, I have a background of um, corporate law in France. Then I've moved to Germany, and uh, currently I've been in the UK for some time. Uh, here, I specialized on uh, internet law, call it globally. Um, I'm passionate about new technologies, and I try to help um, corporations and companies um, to make the best use of what is available online and being compliant with various internet regulations that are existing. Super. So. Uh, I'm I'm thinking of myself as if I were running a business, but I, just now for a second, I'm thinking about Tara staying up to date with everything going on in such a large space. This must be, I mean, I would, I would have to think it's rather daunting to try to keep up with all the different laws everywhere around internet privacy and, and cybersecurity. What, what's your secret trick for staying up to date? Uh, it has indeed become daunting. Internet was at its in 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 infancy. Oh, it, it, it was. It started. Everyone was online, and everyone had in, lots of joys of going online, finding information, communicating with friends, with businesses, with everything. A little bit when we start having automobiles on the road, there was no rule. Everyone just could just move around and then bang around. Then we discovered that we need to have some rules. We need to have some road regulation. We made the road regulation international because it was much easier. Although there are some still who arrive in one side of the road and the other on the other side of the road. Those exactly. crazy people. It's, it's exactly the same crazy people creating the same crazy issues again. We had all these theories of in, internet uh, law, exceptionalist or not. 
uh, we've got countries like France who want to regulate everything lot in the real world. They want to do the same thing online, but online there is no border. And that makes it more difficult. A, a funny example is French um, elections. You're not allowed to give any um, statistic until the elections are finished. Well, not in France, but elsewhere they can. So on Twitter, they launch um, uh, EC London. So people based in London could actually say something. And then they tried with Twitter to ban even the people in London. They, it's kind of a game of chasing the, the mouse and, and the cat. The cat and the mouse probably would mm. be better. So um, that's where we are. We're starting to see like mushrooms growing regulations coming out. As a specialist, it's hard for us. We have to read all the different uh, cases coming out from different European countries and also elsewhere. We have to follow what the supervisory authorities are saying in Europe and elsewhere, because also in the US, privacy and data protection is growing up. We've seen recently the digital uh, market regulation, the digital services regulation, all these laws have to be read, understood, interpreted, discussed, and established by jurisprudence. GDPR was, um, wasn't a revolution. It came out as a reform of the previous directive. I should explain what's the main difference between a directive and regulation. The directive goes in, is voted in at the EU level. It goes to each EU legislation and then it's implemented in that legislation. So we had a patchwork of different regulations around um, e-commerce or, or data protection. It's Vivian Redding who came with huge ambition to say, no, this is not working. What we need is the European regulation that applies directly everywhere in the EU. Again, that was a theory that was beautiful. And then some countries said, well, we need exceptions. We don't want that. The age of consent, for example, it's between 13 and 16. UK thinks their kids are very clever and they can consent at 13. French thinks they are a bit dumber and they need to wait until they are 15. Some other countries say well, 16 is, is the age you need to consent for what is done with your data. So we've got small area where we still got differences between different countries. Another area is interesting is privacy and data protection for disease. Uh, in general, there is no protection. Once you're dead, they can do whatever they want with your data. And that is one area I believe that would create lots of problem. Hmm. But most countries have decided that that would be the case. Some other countries decided that it would extend data protection to the disease. Um, then we started to see data supervisory authorities, which are the authority in each national countries who, will, who is in charge of enforcing the GDPR. Germany being a federation, they have more than one data protection authority. But they are the one who are starting now to apply the uh, regulation and give us a bit more indication on what we can expect. It start to be slightly established. And then we've got the new regulation coming out. For companies outside the EU, 
we had long hesitation of what would apply to them or not. We have now several data protection authorities decision explaining better the criteria of who is actually concerned by the GDPR, even though they're not based in the EU. Uh, some of the criteria is if you target EU customers, or if you use, for example, on your website, um, European currencies, European languages, if you deliver in Europe, you could expect that GDPR would apply to you. All right, so just me imagine one situation. So let's say there's a French citizen living in New York. Which rules apply? But I find the good thing with the GDPR is it doesn't care about nationality of the person, but where it is based. Right. So the it's not necessarily the citizen; it's yeah. where they're where they're living. So okay. if I'm traveling, I'm a French citizen traveling to Taiwan. I, I I'm under the Taiwanese legislation at that point. You're not under GDPR. That's what I can say. That's right. So. If if, if you are a U.S. citizen and you do your transaction or your data processing or your data transfer while you are within the EU, and it's, it's extended to the EEA, there are a few more countries, you benefit from GDPR. There is no discrimination of nationality. It's if the data processing was done within the EU territory or done by anyone in the EU. If, if One funny case is if data of non-EU is processed by a non-EU company, but done in the EU, GDPR applies. So it's kind of long arm of the GDPR outside the EU, but not based on nationality. So in listening to you, I'm thinking how these, the differences, the exceptions that certain countries were having about consent or, or management of, of a deceased profile or enforcement, it's almost a little bit of a, a look into the different cultures. You can almost read into them different things. I mean, I, obviously, British kids are not smarter than the French kids, but there's some element of cultural perspective do you say that's fair? And then what other, you know, what other highlights or maybe uh, cultural differences did you do you see in these new nuances? There is a huge element of culture in privacy. Um, I guess the way that an American would feel his privacy is totally different from the way that a French, English, or Swedish would feel. Swedish go naked in, 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 in the sauna and they're absolutely happy with that. <laughs> English are less happy with that. French go naked on uh, swimming on the beach. English would think it's an offense. Why would you do that? So yeah, th this is one part of the difficulty is a cultural element to it. But that's with, with the privacy. With the data protection, there is an element of culture as well. Uh, there is also, um, I guess, English, I'm generalizing, but English could see more a business perspective, where the French would try to see it more as a human right perspective. So the, the approach to data protection in different European countries is not the same. So, of course, Britain left 
the EU, which is the governance of the GDPR. Give us an update on on what that means for businesses in Britain and and going forward, who will be overseeing the the British side of things to the extent that they're not in the EU anymore? It's a bit of a mess, let's say it straight. Um, GDPR was voted between all these uh, 28 nations and Brexit decided that UK would go out. Um, there, there has been political discussion that has given adequacy to the UK. Um, I've mentioned EU, I've mentioned the EEA, which is the European Economic Area to which GDPR applies. Then we have a certain number of countries who have received adequacy decision. That means discussions between the EU and these countries in checking the way that they were dealing with personal data. Japan was one of the last one, if I don't mistaken, who had the adequacy, it takes a few years of discussions and, and checking. And eventually Japan was uh, received adequacy, which means that sending data between EU and Japan is okay and no problem. There was a problem with the US because US doesn't have a blanket data protection regulation. It's a patchwork of different regulation between states and uh, different area of law. And there is no ombudsman, which is the reason why um, US had a originally a safe harbor agreement with the EU to allow free flow of data between the uh, Europe and the US. Max Schrems, famous um, um, advocate, went to the European Court of Justi Justice and eventually obtained a first judgment invalidating the safe harbor. Then he went again when the privacy shield was replaced by safe harbor and he again invalidated the safe harbor. So for the US, we are in kind of a no man's land of knowing how data could be flowing between EU and the US. Now we've got UK coming out of the EU. So far, UK has received adequacy, but the UK is not trying to make some reform of the GDPR rules, which might actually question the adequacy decision. Yeah, I made the mistake of saying Britain, of course, it is the United Kingdom to include Northern Ireland. So my mistake on that, that is, of course, a big issue, as we all know, over here. So when you are uh, an executive today, uh, you're not a lawyer, typically. Um, well, actually, I had a question for you. To what extent do you always read the fine print, Tara? Are, are you someone who, as a lawyer, have to always read the fine print of click here and accept? Because <laughs> I know I don't. I would be honest, I don't always. Mm. I had that discussion with some colleagues. I have Apple devices. Each time I do an update, Apple asks me to read and agree. What happens if I disagree? I put my expensive iPhone in, in the bin. No, I can't. So I'm not even wasting my time to read it at the time that I do my update. Wouldn't it be just congenial if there were a law that said, just tell me what I need to know, not the whole legalese 65 pages. Maybe there's only one thing that's been changed. What was that and why did you do it? 
Wouldn't that GDPR be a great way to? Has, GDPR has said that. Uh, privacy notices have to be clear, simple, concise, uh, not a blanket privacy notice. It had to be at every step. Uh, when you're a website, for example, um, targeting children, you should write your privacy note in a language that the children could understand. But that's the theory. We haven't seen it in practice. I wrote an article. I'm one that actually suggests uh, to have, just like we have with food labeling with colors, the same sort of things with the privacy notice. Clear answers. How long you're keeping my data? Whom we're sharing my data with? How you're securing my data? Are you sending my data outside the EU? Just several points. This, this is what we should get eventually, but we are we're still far from it. We are far. We totally agree. Uh, there, it, almost like there needs to be a whole new way of schooling lawyers uh, to follow that because they, I, I mean, my approach or my experience with lawyers and business is that these are essentially people who are managing risk and they need to tell you the 65 possibilities that could happen to you if you don't do this and, and you know, basically trying to run the fear of God into me so that I, I, I follow the law. But if I'm an ordinary executive, Tara, and, and in all the spheres that you cover, whether it's privacy, data protection, IP, and so on, what, what would be the thing or the things that should most be keeping me awake at night? What would you suggest? This is where you need to be putting your nose the most in, in, uh, in, in making sure you don't screw it up. Um, I think especially since the pandemic period, we have seen a huge increase of cyber attack. Ransomware is becoming very common. Data breach has consequences from a GDPR point of view and also in other countries. It also has a consequence with clients as you lose your trust. Quite often the executives are um, in danger in their posts when there is a data breach. Although we haven't seen a huge enforcement by the data protection authorities because of the COVID. And we have in the UK, we had two main cases. One was the British Airways data breach. And the other one was the Marriott International uh, data breach. The UK information commissioner started with a um, fine that was very high. Due to COVID, they actually bring it down, but it was a figure with few num a few figures. Um, my approach with the uh, GDPR regulation is that there is a lot of common sense into it. There are some complexities, but not as much as people want to say. Following GDPR's rules and principle would actually allow to minimize security risk. Having a healthier business, for example, GDPR asks you to not keep data longer than necessary. With the Google hype, we had this period where everyone was just collecting a massive amount of data. We will see later on what it worth. And yes, data has a price, but non-accurate data, inaccurate data has absolutely no value. It actually, uh, your, your, your analyze and your perspective are, are fake because you've been using inaccurate data. So GDPR asks you to only keep accurate data, to not keep data longer than necessary, 
and to minimize data. We're talking about culture. There is a culture in UK, whichever organization you call, they ask you a series of questions. And I keep saying, why? Why do you need that? I'm just asking you to say if I can have an account or not. It's nothing personal, it's general. Just tell me yes, no. But no, they won't tell you anything until they know your name, date of birth, address, the brand, uh, toothpaste brand of your grandma and everything. And that makes me crazy. You don't need it, don't keep it. If you don't have the data, you don't have the risk of a data breach of this data. Well, it's, it's typically the types of protocols that people put in place and you have to follow this order list and, and there's no wiggle room, there's no humanity in it. It's just like robots and, and they just ask though, that's because, well, if my boss, if I don't do it, then my boss is going to yell at me. Exactly. But that, that's where we should change on the way that we are doing, understanding that the data breach has a cost. But that would only happen if data protection authorities actually enforce the GDPR. And if when they see a, a non-compliant company, they ask that data be deleted. Fine is one thing. It's not always the best, best, best thing. The fine that Facebook or Google have been given are just a tickle. Sure. It's not a day of revenue even. But asking them to delete data, that would actually have an effect. Uh, Clearview, artificial intelligence, is one big corporation collecting massive amount of data from everyone in the whole world. They've been fined by several data protection authorities, including a recent case by the UK Information Commissioner. And the fine is also coming with a request to delete unlawfully collected data. This is probably the way we should go and that we, we would have chances to see things changing. My observation though, Tara, in the way that the GDPR prescribes what we should do is it's very qualified. You know, you should do only what's necessary, uh, keep it as long as you need it as a, it's sort of, it doesn't exactly state, well, you should only have it for three months. And so I can just imagine lawyers saying, well, no, 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 we needed it for 18 months, just in case, or we needed it for 18 years, just in case. And so, so the imposition that the GDPR, the policing of it must be very complicated when it's so, I would say broad. It's a very interesting observation, actually. When GDPR came out and all these policy notices and, and, and privacy policies were uh, drafted by lawyers, they started to put data retention period. And as lawyers being conservative, they tried to put it as long as possible. Um, now we are four years after, and I think it would be interesting to go and check how they actually complied with it. So I suggest to people who have been victim of data breach uh, to ask the company, say, okay, on your policy, you had that many years of data retention. Can you prove how you check that after coming to that deadline, you have actually deleted the data? Which process do you have in place that does that? Big companies can afford, they've got CRM and they might have a warning of um, the end of the data retention period. I guess many companies don't have, they just put it in their policy. We now reach the these three, four years. Sometimes you can keep it longer. It's not necessarily that short, it can be longer. 
But the one who took, for the cases where the, the data retention was short, prove me that you actually deleted your data. This is, this is going to be the next step. Hi, my name is Sara, and I want to tell you about my podcast called Can I Offer You Some Feedback? I'm a business consultant and executive coach with over 20 years experience in change management, leadership development, and naturally providing feedback to high performers. My podcast is for those of you who have a complicated relationship with feedback, whether giving, receiving, avoiding or seeking. Feedback is essential for our development. In each episode, you'll hear from real people across industries with their ideas, perspectives, and best practices on feedback. I'll also be sharing business bites with you, simple explanations of organizational tools, management techniques, and leadership philosophies that will help you and your businesses thrive. You can listen to Can I Offer You Some Feedback on your favorite podcast app or learn more at evergreenpodcasts.com. That would be a fascinating thing to be able to poll. Uh, I, I, I can relate to that only in one area, which is image rights. When we would do a, a, a photo shoot, we would have a model, the photo, photographer and such, all these rights. And that was over a specific amount of time. And we got into the internet and then we had to track as different countries around the world were using these models and, and be able to identify when these model rights had expired to take them down. Otherwise, of course, we'd get our asses sued. On the other side. So going to this notion of, of what we keep me awake, the cyber attacks, the, the ransomware, how does one go about protecting oneself? I mean, if I'm an executive in the company, I've read about it in the FT, it's happened to BA, it's happened to all these other companies, it hasn't yet happened to me, what should I be, or how could I be organizing and orchestrating my own defense mechanism? Uh, well, if you follow the principle um, in GDPR and you had minimized your data, you have less risk of having data breached. If you had uh, limited access to the data, you had less uh, risk of being breached. If your data retentions were reduced, you wouldn't have that many data to be breached. And I advise different level of archiving live iCarve for what you need every day. And then second level, when you don't need it that much, but you still need a reduced um, access to this data. And if you're just keeping for archive, why do you need it to be connected to internet? That's one thing. The second thing is encryption and updating. Maybe I start with updating. Um, you might have heard as many about the uh, Panama Papers, the law firm. Most like Fonseca. Why the paper were breached? Because their IT system were out of date. It was very easy to actually hack the system. This is what reveals all the scandal of Panama Papers. Recently, another law firm was fined by the UK Information Commissioner because uh, a client noticed that their database was unsecure. They were using a, a system platform that was not uh, updated. They actually had five or six months late to update, which I think in real life, some companies got far less than that, but they were fine because there was a data breach, there was a ransomware. So if you update regularly, you have less risk. If you encrypt, you have less risk. And this is where I had, in my own case, issues with lawyers in France 
absolutely refusing any kind of encryption because they think that they've been exchanging in an easy way by simple email and that's just all okay. Um, before the email, sending a letter was a huge hassle between the dictation, the, uh, the typing, the correcting, the putting it on the letter and, and the stamp. We release all that time into a one click and I send my email. So we gain a lot of time in the processing. All they are asked in, in the use of this simple uh, process is to add a layer of encryption. We've got so many different, very cheap or even free ways of encrypting the data and send it. It adds a layer of password. You share the password, not with the same channel of communication to the other party and the other party can read the, uh, the letter with no problem. So I have a case of a French notaire who refused to go through this. They said, just send me your um, documents by simple email. The other parties involved thought that um, encryption was absolutely unnecessary. Ironically, the notary had his inbox very possibly breached. They contest the that fact, but I have received two series of email coming apparently for this law firm with his name appear. Next to it, it's a genuine innocent email address. It's a phishing email that invites to click on the attachment. And it's a, it's a one level more intelligent type of phishing. You trust this because it reproduced a previous email exchange that I had with that notaire. Wow. So when I read it on my mobile phone, and sometimes you're in a hurry, you're waiting for the document. I read it, it only shows the name of the notaire. And I see my previous exchange with the notaire. So I think it's genius. Yeah. If I wasn't the careful that I am, I would just click on it and I would have infected my whole uh, system. When I went back to them using different email address saying, have you sent that to me? They didn't respond it. And they are absolutely ignorant of security. They, they said it doesn't come from us. You see it, it's not an email address. So we're not for anything into that. It happens that I came across a journalist of a IT magazine who had wrote a, an article because they were approached by another person who had the same kind of issue from another notaire in Paris. So I'm not the only one. Then I have filed a criminal complaint, which a French system allows you to complain against X. So you go to the prosecutor and you said, this has happened. Someone is responsible, please do investigate. And they have so far accepted to investigate, but I have no news. Uh, the lawyer who actually did that complaint for me, he had himself received the same kind of email, exactly the same date from another notaire. So ah. very possibly it's the platform that notaires in, in Paris or maybe a wider region in, in France have been using that been hacked. Hmm. They have been hacked and they have recognized that for fraud uh, in payments. You are dealing with a sale of a property with a notaire. Um, they ask to send money. Someone come and intercept that email, give you a fake account number and you put the money in that fake account number and you lost your money. Well, that we can say for sure notary publics, notaire are not exactly the most advanced techno geeks. 
they're very happy to use e-signatures and all these things. That's where I love technology. I and mean, it's great that they use e-signature, but they need to have an IT that explain how these things work and how to keep them secure. So if I'm, if I, if I'm in a business, what about things like WhatsApp? Uh, they keep telling us it's encrypted end to end. Should I be worried about using as an alternative channel, like you were mentioning for the password, a system like WhatsApp or, or any of the other bigger name brands? Would you are you more of a proponent of Telegram or a signal of, of these other lesser, not owned by Facebook <laughs> companies? You, you, you've said it, it's owned by Facebook. There are cases where law firm have been fined uh, because of the use of WhatsApp. Um, I hear lawyer, we had a case in France where uh, a, 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 a President of the Republic, Sarkozy, who is an ex-lawyer, was in communication with his lawyer and they were wiretapped. So all lawyer came and cried, we should be protected by confidentiality. Yes, they should be protected by confidentiality. But when they use WhatsApp, they actually broadcast everything to everyone, including the US. And the reason why the Schrems 2 invalidated the privacy shield is because of the some of the US regulation uh, that came out with uh, Snowden revelation with NSA intercepting data of EU citizen. So Privacy Shield was invalidated by the European Court of Justice. And since then, July 2020, data should be not transmitted to the US or any US communication entity because NSA and the US government can intercept the data. Therefore, using WhatsApp should be prohibited by this prohibition of the data flow to the US. And WhatsApp is not the tool to be used by professionals. If kids want to chat on WhatsApp, why not? If they really want, I wouldn't even advise it, but it's different from a professional using WhatsApp. They should not use WhatsApp. And, uh, and yes, I, I, I use Signal. Mm. Uh, um, I think it's better, but technology evolved. These companies evolved. I, I'm, I remember when Google started, they were the nice guys again, fighting against the big, the big bad ones. We do no evil. Voila, do no evil. And we, I was so proud because I received an invitation to have my, uh, my Gmail account for free. And it, it was great. And we see what Google came today. This is, this is one big issue is when data is collected, the data is at risk. We should be very careful about keeping minimal data, reducing access to that data, and keep keeping the data secure. Then we've got the risk of who else is buying the company. Every merger and acquisition should, as part of the research, look at how the data has been collected, how it's been kept secured, and what it worked. This is what Marriott missed because the Marriott Rich was not actually not the main Marriott database, but it was database of what they acquired that was not secure, but the fine was for them. So it might, makes me think of when you're making a, an acquisition to also understand how the AI has been programmed, whatever AI you put in place, it, it can be a black box, but are you able to explain the ethics behind your AI, the one that you're acquiring, and how does it merge with your own AI? I bet that's a, a pretty scary proposition. 
Very true. There, there, there is um, one AI company. Uh, age verification is a very hard thing to do in the real life and even worse online. Uh, border enforcement have been struggling with defining the age of people they arrest because a lot of them say, oh, we're minor. And it's very difficult. Physically, it's very difficult to prove the age of someone. So this AI came and collected huge amount of pictures of children. They paid some parents to collect the data of their kids that they say they are anonymized. They just have the months of the date of birth and the picture of the kids. How these kids will feel when they are adult about their parents selling their photos, I don't think it's very ethical, but they did it. They say they did it in a very large global uh, scale because AI had various biases. One of them is ethnical. The AI accuracy is very low when it concerns women. That's not uh, ethnical, but it's re recognizing the woman is harder apparently for AI, but especially for Asian and African. Um, accuracy is as low as 80%. This is why it's, it's an issue when facial recognition is used by law enforcement because the AI recognition of the person is very low. So huge um, number of people could be wrongly accused. So coming back to this AI for age recognition, they use that to facilitate the purchase of alcohol or cigarette in a supermarket. They've been selling that in several supermarkets in the UK. Famous age gates. Well, uh, there is one very interesting principle in data protection, and that is the proportionality. You have to balance the necessity, the harm you cause to the um, data subject, the cost and the way you could achieve the same results in a less intrusive way. Well, I think you can just ask the child his ID card. Mm. <laughs> Maybe they don't always have it, but it's better than creating that database. So this company I've been discussing with the um, founders, they tell me they're really good guys. I believe them. But how many startups have we seen making money? And as soon as they make them money, they are bought by the big Less yeah. voila. So this database put all these faces in danger. And when a measure of acquisition happens, the data would go in the hands of who we don't know. And the proportionality principle should not allow such a collection of so many data, plus the fact that parents should not sell their kids' data. In terms of, of running a business and thinking about this, it does feel for me that one of the big areas that uh, I'm sure many have looked at, but really is, what is your ethical line? How do you draw an ethical line that you can then communicate and have everybody throughout your organization down to the programmer understand what is good and what is bad? What are, I think that has to be one of the hardest things to implement in an organization. In principle, this is what we believe, but in reality, it's always gonna be disturbed. And especially when you talk about mergers and acquisitions, will you, will you make 
the ethical line uh, a go no go on the acquisition because they don't have the same ethics all throughout all their AI and everywhere else. You've been in big business for more than I have been. How often have you heard the, the word ethic? Not in not in the nice brochure and no in a real meeting. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Very 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 few people actually care about ethic. I'm 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 in an area where. We do consider ethics. I hear about ethics all the time. And the problem with ethics is also it's connected with culture and not everyone got the same ethics and the same culture. The way Chinese see ethics is totally different from what we see. Uh, Chinese are more or less okay with social scoring, with having Q bar for everything you do. So if you eat well and healthy, you can travel. If you've been eating too much rubbish, your social score is very low and you might be banned from traveling. They seem to have been okay with that. I guess there are some who protest, but the average Chinese have been living with that for now many years. And I don't think they had the ethical questioning of this kind of practice. France has high ethic. Practice doesn't mean they are much better. <laughs> <laughs> but officially they're things yeah they draw they draw a higher line yeah the, the line is high the practice is low it's, it's actually quite interesting when i compare what's going on in the u.s and in the eu we say u.s has no adequacy but in practice i'm not sure i'm totally wrong by saying that u.s actually applies more data protection than the eu because you've got the big cases going to court. We haven't yeah, but, seen that. Those, those lawyers. <laughs> exactly. I've got U US lawyers who keep coming to me and they said, we need to do a class action, bring your class action to the US. How can we do that? I'm not 100% for the big class actions where it becomes a business as it had become in the US. But having a little bit of a class action in, in, in the EU would be good. We had one big case in, in, in the UK that unfortunately was lost at the Supreme Court. And that was a Mr. Lloyd, nothing to do with the Lloyd um, insurance, who sued Google for collecting data on, on the Safari browser. Uh, the class action was dropped because the UK Supreme Court decided that not everyone in the class had the same level of harm which is a bit of a shame because how could anyone suffer the same level of harm? It's, it's never gonna be identical, um, yeah, but that's what happened. So we, you're just talking about the US and, and the and GDPR. To what extent is, would you um, think of GDPR as leading, leading the show when it comes to privacy and regulations? Would, is, it, is, it, is it for you the leading light for the world to follow? Obviously, China, good luck. But do, do you think other countries should be adopting the same? And how, how policed is it? Um, I do believe so. I do believe that... We had, as I've mentioned, the directive previously, but GDPR with a big fine is what came into uh, every news on the first pages and made the headlines and eventually spread all over the world. The uh, US has uh, adapted and adopted new regulation, probably following the GDPR. 
uh, quite a few of these uh, laws are similar to what the um, GDPR has done and has been copied in the US. In uh, Asia, we have the uh, APEC. Uh, even China has adopted the people, PIPL. That's funny. <laughs> very funny. I actually had the case of a lawyer who did not, who's been sending data to China for, for many years without considering any kind of encryption or protection of all this transfer. Um, and they, they, they responded when I complained. They said, oh, but by the way, uh, China has adopted the people, so it's all, all is good. I said, oh, great. So you self-promoted uh, China to adequacy. It's good. But we've got reports, recent report on uh, given to the European Data Protection Board about censorship and government data access in China, India, and Russia. No, people is not what give actually uh, any insurance that data is safe in China. We hear more about US, but China is not in a much better position. In, a, in another phase or phrase, maybe, I usually tend to talk about how the people are the weakest link in cybersecurity, which exactly. is sort of ironic. Very true. Very true. We had um, we had a big case in the UK that also went to the um, Supreme Court. It was a um, an employee of the Morrison supermarket. He was sacked. He was angry. And at the time that he was still working with the HR and accounting, an external accounting, I think it was KPMG, he kept a USB key of all the data, of all the HR data that he was supposed to give to KPMG. When he was sacked and angry, he published that on the dark web. So it was a case of would, um, would Morrison's be liable for the act of their employees. Court of Appeal said yes. Supreme Court said no, because they had a very good lawyer, basically. But yet there is, um, that, that was done in purpose. I've seen several cases like that where an employee as a revenge um, breached the data. But there is also the everyday common employee mistake. Yeah, the email with the lookalike phishing, attachment, uh, the, all those types of, of issues. I, well, our time is limited. Uh, I, one quick question, VPN, what is the VPN that you recommend? Or, or do you have one that you, you like the most or do you have multiple? I've became an adept of ProtonMail. So I use ProtonMail email and ProtonMail uh, VPN. Um, I think it was last year, a bit longer, I was interviewed actually by someone about another VPN that I recommended at the time. Um, since then, I saw um, bad reviews about them. Technology evolves, yeah. companies evolve. They start as good boys, as I've yeah. mentioned, and then money, attraction, make them change. So far, in my opinion, ProtonMail is in the... Good, Good hands for now. Tara, many thanks for that. Um, thanks for coming on my show to talk about these really important topics that uh, I think don't get enough light and shining on in business these days. How can somebody uh, find about your writings, uh, the data rainbow, and uh, more about Tara Tobman Basirian? 
Thank you. And sorry, my name is very difficult to pronounce. I did my best. Uh, <laughs> you did pretty well. Well, I can be found on LinkedIn. I'm quite vocal and I've got a really great network of people exchanging and debating on LinkedIn. So I encourage people if they're interested to look at my account, Topman by Syrian. Um, I write on my um, website, datarainbow.eu. And I'm also on Twitter. Um, I believe on exchanging, on progressing, because it's a new area. No one can pretend. If you, if you, one advice I can give, if you go and see a lawyer or an IT guy or someone who said he knows everything, just turn your way and go somewhere else. No one knows everything. We are all in progress of learning. The more I know, the more I don't know. Absolutely. Tara, merci beaucoup. My pleasure. Thanks for having listened to this episode of the Minter Dialogue podcast. If you like the show and would like to support me, please consider a donation on patreon.com forward slash Minterdial. You can also subscribe on your favorite podcast service. And as ever, rating and reviews are the real currency for podcasts. You'll find the show notes with over 2,000 and more blog posts on Minterdial.com. Check out my documentary film and four books including my last one, You Lead, How Being Yourself Makes You a Better Leader. And to finish, here's a song I wrote with Stephanie Singer, A Convinced Man. I like the feel of a stranger Tucked around me, precipitating the danger To feel free, trust is the reason Still I won't tell the lie I sit here passively, hope for your respect Anticipating the thrill of your intellect Maybe I tell myself, there's no use in me lying I'm a convinced man building an urge I'm a convinced man to live and die submerged A convinced man in the arms of a woman I'm a convinced man challenge my fate I'm a convinced man competition's innate A convinced man in the arms of a woman Despise revenges and struggle with deceit Live for the challenge so life's not incomplete What's wrong with challenge? I know soon we all die I like the feel of a stranger tucked around me precipitating the danger Trust in my reason And let me show you why I'm a convinced man Practicing my lines I'm a convinced man Hearing these confines A convinced man In the arms of a woman I'm a convinced man Admit to the test I'm a convinced man I'm ready for an arrest
The world's best-known investor and Wall Street expert Warren Buffett once said, Wall Street is the only place that people ride to in a Rolls Royce to get advice from those who take the subway. Mr. Buffett's quote is remarkably accurate, but how many people would rather receive advice from him than someone simply guessing? Welcome to Buy, Hold, Sell, your single source for Wall Street knowledge and profitable guidance. Please join me, Todd Schoenberger, and fellow trader Tobin Smith, as well as host Veronica Dudo, for a podcast known to move the needle for investors. Tobin and I are seasoned Wall Street executives with deep investment experience, and we are prepared to share our advice to those who choose to listen. Download Buy, Hold, Sell today on the Evergreen Podcast Network or your favorite podcast channel.